Welcome to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the wonderful world of wine. Every week, Kim and I are here to talk wine with you. How are you today, Kim? I'm doing well, Mark. Nice to see you again. Nice to see you. And once again, we are not in the studio. We are recording remotely for our listeners due to the quarantine situation. But we have some stories to talk about, Kim. And I'd like to talk first. We had a question from a listener. And this gentleman, whose name is Dave, is located in Dublin, Ireland. So the wonderful world of wine. We are reaching in Ireland. And he had a very interesting question, Kim. He asked us, we talked about decanting, and he asked, do you pour slow or do you pour fast when you're decanting? So how would you like to start answering this for Dave, Kim? So I think this is a great question. um, And it clarifies a couple of different things about why we decant and what is the purpose of your decanting, because there really are a couple of different separate instances where you might want to decant your wine. So first, I want to say thank you, Dave, and hi, all the way over there in Ireland. It's really exciting for us to be getting some questions from our listeners. And really, I'm super chuffed that we have a question from across the pond. So Thank you for your question about decanting. And what I would say is, why are you decanting your wine in the first place? Are you decanting a younger wine that you're trying to aerate? Or are you decanting an older bottle that you have a lot of sediment in the bottom that you're trying to get the drinkable wine off of the crunchy bits that are kind of at the bottom that you don't really want in your glass. So if your purpose is to aerate the wine, you've got a younger wine that you want to um, open it up and liven it up a little bit, you can pour it you know, as I don't want to say violently, but as brusquely as you like. So you can slosh it around in the bottle if you want. Um, You don't have to worry about it splashing too much. If you're splashing it into a decanter, that's all well and good because your purpose is to add oxygen to the wine. You're trying to aerate that as much as you can and open up those aromas and those flavors. So in that case, you know, it's good. It's good to be a little rough with your wine. If on the other hand, you have an older bottle and you're trying to separate the good drinking wine from the sludge on the bottom, or maybe it's on the side of the bottle if you've been laying your bottles down. And I know I've found this with a number of my older bottles that I've been pulling out of my cellar, that because they're laying down, you've got your layer of sediment on the side of the bottle instead of on the bottom of the bottle. So it's got this layer um, that when you tilt it up, you really can see where your wine has been laying down. If that is the case, then you absolutely want to be gentle with it. You want to pour it cleanly um, away from where the sediment is. So if, say, your sediment is on the left side of the bottle, you want to pour it on the opposite side so that you only get clear wine and you don't necessarily want to pour every single drop of wine out of that bottle. So you want to pour it gently. You want to pour it slowly. Um, You don't want to add too much air because that wine has probably already gotten as much oxygen as it needs to taste really good. And you don't want to add too much because sometimes that will break the wine down even further and push it beyond its deliciousness phase. So be gentle with those older bottles. Don't necessarily pour every single little bit of wine out of that bottle because you're still going to get some sediment from the bottom and get as 
I would say as much of that clean wine as possible, but err on the side of caution and leave a little bit more maybe than you would than you would want to in the bottle so that you know that every drop that you've poured into your decanter or into your glasses is uh, is clean and ready to drink. Yeah, I think the key, Kim, and you, you hit on it, was putting oxygen into the wine. The whole idea of aerating and decanting is to get some oxygen into that wine to bring it the aromatics out. And you think about it, if it's a young wine, it's been bottled and sitting there not too long, but it tends to be, it's probably its tannins are not as, are more harsh maybe than, a, than an aged wine. So for me, the tannins love to absorb oxygen. So aerating it, working that uh, on a younger wine, I think you want to pour it fast to, to aerate as much as possible. Do you agree, Kim? I've, I've heard in the past where, on, especially in an older wine, you should let it stand up one hour before you open it to decant it. Do you agree with I think that? It- I think it depends where your sediment is. So, so if it was me, laying on its I've side, got... it's laying on its side for years, you take it out of the cellar before you decant it, stand it up and let that sediment drop fully. But an hour, an hour isn't going to give it time to drop. No. No. I, I feel like if, if your wine has been standing up and then you move it from a standing up position to, you know, maybe you bring it up to your kitchen. And you, want, and you continue to stand it up, then I would let it sit for a little bit of time just because of that movement from whatever, wherever your storage unit is to wherever your serving unit is has disrupted it a little bit. So at that point, I would. But if it's been lying down for a couple of you know, months or even years and you've got sediment on the side, that is not going to give it enough time to settle completely to the bottom of the bottle. So I would be a little bit less worried about the shaking up of the sediment if it's been if it's been lying. I would just be aware of what side it was lying on so you know where all that sediment is in your bottle so that you don't accidentally pour all the sediment off first instead of getting the clean stuff. So you want to pour it from the side where you have no sediment. So the sediment should be on the top as you're pouring you want that to be on the top of it, whereas the, the wine is coming from the bottom. Yeah, so on that particular wine, when you're, when you're at the end, getting close to the end of the bottle, you want to go really slow and watch that Absolutely. sediment. So yep. that's Yeah, for any of those older go bottles, slow. go really slow at the end because that's when you're going to start to get some of um, more solid particles that have, uh, that have dropped out of the wine. And I think this is sa- the same with white wines too, a, a young white wine. You can really decant it fast. For me, it kind of blows off. A lot of times you might have a lot of sulfur where it's just pat, where it's just bottled. So it kind of blows that off. So pour it really fast in the decanter. And you can also decant the aged white wines, but you want to go a little slower. They wouldn't necessarily be sediment, but you don't want to go too crazy aerating it fast. So I think it was a great question, Kim. Yeah. And we you could go on and on. really opened my eyes to the idea of decanting younger whites it's not anything that I ever would have done before, but you've really shown me how much brighter and exuberant a young white wine can taste and blows off, you know, so- sometimes some of those sulfury smells or sometimes if you've got a white wine that has been bottled under a screw cap um, and, and needs that little bit of air to release that last little bit of sulfur that was in there for a preservative. You know, it really does open up the bottle. So I'm, I'm really glad that you have shown me how much improvement a young white wine can have just by being decanted. What percentage of wines at home, Kim, do you decant? Um, I'm feel, I feel I decant more when we're doing events than I do personally for myself. I don't do too much at home unless it's an older bottle. Yeah. Um, sometimes with a younger red, 
I absolutely will do it, especially if it's for a special dinner, like if I'm having my parents over and I want to open a nicer bottle of red and I know that it's not at its peak, I, I definitely will decant it. But if I'm pulling an older bottle and I know that there's sediment in that bottle, I absolutely will decant it because I know that there's going to be, you know, somebody that's going to upend the very bottom of the bottle into somebody's glass and it's all going to be very chewy and not yeah. fun. So I try to avoid those situations and decant it ahead of time so that we don't run into the, the chewy last glass because I'm usually the one who gets the chewy last glass. Yeah. And that stuff we talked about in the past, that won't hurt you if you swallow some of it. It's just right. not right. pleasant. It's just not looking. very pleasant. But that's a good point to bring up. It's like none, nothing in these bottles after they've been sitting for a little while is going to hurt you. It just like, like eating coffee grinds. <laughs> it's not super pleasant. Yeah. And we talked in the past too about boxed wines. I think boxed wines decanting really fast changes the whole view on a boxed wine to me. So Uh if you want to, you're thinking of a big gathering, you don't want to put the box on the table, decant it really fast, aerate it, you'll be surprised. It can uh, really show well. So yeah, great, great trick. Not a trick. (laughs) A great way to make your wines taste a little bit better especially for a group. But thank you, Dave, for the question all the way from Ireland. So it's really nice to sort of dig into some of these topics when we get some interest from our listeners and, you know, a little bit more of the nitty gritty of what you want to know about the topics that we uh, explore and discuss. So to our other listeners out there, please continue to send us some questions and we would love to address them in future shows. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark and Kim, with you every week. You can find more information about Mark at his website, franklinliquors.com, and more about myself at vinitaswineworks.com. And you can find our show on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. The first article that we wanted to bring to your attention today is a topic that we often discuss. I know a couple of weeks ago we talked about cork production and how corks were made and the process that is a very lengthy process for producing natural corks from the bark of the cork tree. And now we wanted to bring your attention to um, an article that was published not too long ago uh, in Britain from their uh, publication, The Daily Mail out of the UK. And it was about how one of the largest cork producers in the world has discovered a way of treating their corks that will completely eliminate uh, cork taint, which is the, the big baddie in the world of corks and why so many of us in the wine industry have moved towards using alternative closures, such as screw caps, such as plastic corks, composite corks, glass corks. There's been this whole movement, as you all know, towards alternative closures. And now this large, large cork company is saying we have found a solution to this problem, which is very interesting. Yeah. And I think a lot of times we talked to our listeners about corked wine. And when we hold events, we tell people about this issue. So the corks are wood and they grow a bacteria that you can smell it. It smells like wet dog or a wet newspaper. So when you say it's corked, it doesn't mean there's chunks of this bad cork in there. It's, it's a, actually an aroma that throws the, the wine off. And the more you taste, the more sensitive you are to this problem in the wine world. And, and I think people are shocked, Kim, when we tell them there's a statistic anywhere between one to 5% of every bottle of wine that has a true natural cork is guaranteed bad because mm-hmm. of this problem. So this company from Portugal, how do you say their name, Kim? Amaral? Amaral? I think it's Amarin. 
Amarin. It's a $4 billion company. So it's one, it's the, one of the biggies that is making most of the corks you're seeing in bottles all around the world. Yeah, and they produce out- a third of all the wine corks in the third. world. Like, and that is massive. One third of all wine corks come from this company. So they came out and said, we now guarantee that if you get a cork from us, they won't have this problem. And I, I'm kind of questioning because they didn't say it's, it's a secret why they're saying mm-hmm. it's, it's guaranteed. So to, that right away to me is like, well, if you patent it, say it, right? Say what it is so we know. Maybe they're just saying it because it could only be 1% in the world, right? I mean, do you, do you think it's I'm really- I'm glad you're being skeptical because I was skeptical of this too. You I mean, were. on the one hand, I guess trade secrets, you know, if you are such a big company and you have discovered this really industry changing technology. Do you want everybody else to know what it is? No, probably not. These guys are like the Tony Stark of the the cork world. Do you want the rest of the cork producers to know that this is the process to eliminate cork taint? Probably not because now, you know, you're the, the big guy in the industry. But on the other hand, it's like, well, how can we trust that what you have come up with really is the solution to this problem without knowing what it is? So yeah, that whole secret thing, it's like I kind of can see both sides of the coin, but I, I'm definitely on the same page with you as far yeah, as skepticism I, of this is, is, is this something that is really real? They mentioned that it's patent pending. So that's kind of an out for them not to say, it, but they did hint that the process that it has something to do with steam, steaming the core where it kills everything on it, I guess. So uh, I guess they haven't patented it yet and they don't want to say it yet, but I would, I would assume this is going to be another level of cork they're going to produce, another cost level. Like you a know? higher level. Yeah. And when we yeah. talked about corks in the past, we said they separate them by yellow, green, and red, you know, levels mm-hmm. of cork. I would think this is going to be the next level and add another cost to cork itself. Right. And then if wine producers decide that they want to, well, first of all, they have to win the trust of the wine producers and, you know, convince them that, yes, it, this, these corks are worth paying X amount of euros or dollars more for, because we can guarantee that you're not going to have any cork taint, convince those producers to buy the corks. And then once the producers use those corks, you know, are they going to then get that information to their distributors and then down to us on the on the ground floor to convince people to buy bottles of wine with cork again and say we guarantee that this bottle of wine won't have cork taint. So I think it's going to be you know there are multiple levels of trust in this that that have to come down. So I think it'll be very interesting that maybe this is something that is going to be a game changer for our industry. So it's sort of exciting if it if it's actually true. Yeah, and anything patent or new method, it's, it's definitely going to add a cost. Mm-hmm. Have you seen, Kim, there was a thing going around where, uh, I don't know if it was wine makers or cork producers that were using dogs, training dogs to sniff the cork. Yeah, I did see that. I think was it was it the, the cork, cork producers. It was the producers. Imagine so. that to train a dog to go around sniffing for the back for the. the you know what? If cork. dogs can sniff out truffles, why can't they sniff out possible cork taint? Dogs have excellent noses. Yeah, yeah. interesting. Yeah. So new stuff, and we always like to talk about these things that are maybe a little bit sciency, but also could have a, a real impact on you, the wine buyer. So we will keep our eye on this story and. I really would like to get a little bit more detail about this, uh, this process. So we'll keep an eye on it for you and we'll let you know if it is uh, something that's really going to happen.
You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine, and we are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. If you'd like to get more information about Kim, please go to her on her website, vinitaswineworks.com. If you'd like to get more information about myself, please go to franklinliquors.com. And you can find us on Facebook, The Wonderful World of Wine, and you can find us on Twitter at, at Wine Education. Our next article is from a Wine Enthusiast magazine, and it talks about virtual wine tastings and a guide about them. And Kim, this is something that's been trending a lot because of the quarantine and the situation going on in the, in the country and all over the world, where people have adapted going away from in-person tastings to virtual tastings. So, and this is something that, you know, got, got going really fast. Like as soon as wineries were shut down, wine tasting rooms were shut down, wine tastings were shut down, I I felt like within a matter of weeks or even days, there were uh, things that were certainly hitting my newsfeed and my inbox about virtual tastings that not only were wineries in other parts of the country and other parts of the world doing, but folks in our local area who do wine tastings were already geared up to do uh, you know, virtual wine events. So I feel like our, you know, our, our small world of, of wine tasting people really rallied and like got really creative and we're starting to move into this virtual realm of doing wine tastings, you know, almost immediately after we all sort of had to shut down and stay at home. So yeah, sort it was of, almost a you know, sort of crazy survival. how it happened. Yeah. It was it was a survival technique for, for many people, the wineries to get people to say, Hey, we're still here and we can ship you wine and here's our wine. And for people around here, I know representatives of wine, they were just sitting home. They couldn't go out. So they had to reach out and find ways to to get people involved. And uh, I've had many people, we tried a couple virtual tastings. Uh, I What were some of the things in the article, Kim, they were hitting on of, of kind of a guide? I, I ended up writing more questions for you than than what the guide, it was just kind of saying enhances the tasting in a different way, it's right? Enhancing more things from. Yeah. So it was, it was like, well, how do you translate the experience of being there in person to being there in a, a more remote situation? So I, I think there's this breakdown between how are you actually doing your wine tasting? Are the participants drinking the wine along with you? Like, do you all have the same wines in front of you or is it more like you are the presenter and you're giving a little bit more of a lecture on wine and people maybe can have different styles or, or different grapes in front of them that they can then be tasting that, you know, gives them a little bit of an idea of what you're talking about. But I, I kind of feel like the logistics of it is much more difficult when it's harder for people to get the the product in front of them and how much of this is more of like a gimmick and how much of it is a sustainable way of doing business because so much of what we do in our industry is so face-to-face and is so relationship building and especially in those tasting rooms you know if you're face-to-face with someone you want to engage them in a real conversation about what they're tasting and what they're liking and what they're not liking so figuring out a way to make that still have relevance I, I think is something that we're all still sort of working through. So yeah, I, I kind of feel like it leads to a lot more questions than um, than answers at this stage of it. I found the ones that I've seen, it's more personal. It's, you know, here's my winery. And it's the smaller guys. Mm-hmm. It's not the big companies really yeah. doing this. It's the smaller guys who, it's a survival thing again. They, they bring you to their winery. They're showing you things you've never seen before, before behind the scenes of the wine rooms, the wineries, the vineyards. And I think we touched on it in the past when we talked about this, that I really feel this is going to change 
how events are held in the future. Like if we have a guest speaker who's representing the winery, going that virtual route with that speaker, I think is going to enhance tastings even more. And they know people are liking it now. So we can incorporate that in another way in the future. So I'm liking what they're doing. I I unfortunately, I think when when I tried a couple of them, there wasn't much interest because I felt people, like you said earlier, they they felt they needed the wines, but they really Mm -hmm. didn't. It's just the experience of everybody kind of getting together virtually. One of the questions I have for you, Kim, was have you seen any virtual tastings from a restaurant point of view? I did not. So no, I I'm have curious. not seen you think it doesn't work. No, I haven't seen anything like that. Um, the ones that I've seen locally have been some people who do similar things to what you and I do, where we do classes, where we do seminars, um, and and the the people that I know who are doing these kind of things are trying to translate what we do in an in real life situation into a virtual platform. So, you know, how many people do you want to get into a Zoom meeting and, and what are we going to talk about and are people going to taste versus are you just going to listen? And, and I think it depends on the audience. I really feel like there are some people that they get so much more out of the experience of tasting alongside someone like you, Mark, or someone like myself, that just having the words spoken to them, but not having the experience of tasting the wine really leaves a a gap and really leaves leaves something to be desired. So I I think that the idea that a lot of these wineries have where you have a wine club or you have you know you have your mailing list where you know people are regular purchasers of of your wines in a wine club and that you do something maybe for a small group, you know, maybe for only 20 people and you get the wines ahead of time so that you get to taste alongside with the presenter from the winery. So it's like you're in their tasting room. Maybe they can give you that little virtual tour, but then you get the added benefit of being able to taste alongside that person who knows these wines inside and out and can lead you through the tasting. And then because it's live, you're able to ask questions of that person as if you were in the same room. So I personally really feel like the tasting component is really important. And I, I'm sure that people will be and, of course, people do wine education classes where there isn't a tasting component. But I think if you're trying to recreate the atmosphere of a tasting room or of a tasting class, you really have to have the wine tasting component as part of it. I like that the article brought this to the attention of people. You know, this is what's going on. This is kind of a guide of why they're doing it, how they're doing it. And you mentioned, Kim, classes. I mean, the tastings are usually wine related or supplier related, but through all this, a lot of the wine schools had to adapt where they couldn't have mm-hmm. people. So they have, they have done virtual schools or right. virtual education which you said, but you're still missing that tasting with everybody component, but they're still doing business going virtual. So right. and, that's, and this is not necessarily a new thing. This has been something that wine education has been grappling with, with for the last couple of years, because we're even just five or 10 years ago, we were all used to the only way of doing things was getting together in a classroom with a bunch of people. You've got five glasses in front of you. You taste through a bunch of wines and you talk about either the history or the grape variety or whatever you happen to be studying on that day. And a lot of the organizations that focus on wine education have had to adapt to people not having the time to be able to participate in those type of classes. So this movement toward 
remote learning has already been happening in our industry. And I think that this idea of grappling with not being able to taste exactly the same wines, even from exactly the same bottle with the same people that you're taking a class with, because obviously there is variation from bottle to bottle, has been a real sticking point for our industry. And this whole thing where now, you know, we can't even go to a tasting room and taste with each other. We can't have in-person classes. God forbid, we can't be sharing a spit bucket with somebody else at this point in time really made us have to reflect on how are we going to continue the educational aspect of what we're doing. Um, and this is something that I, I'm thinking about all the time, you know, as I'm thinking about going back into my pursuits of training my wine staff at Legal Seafoods. It's like, how are we going to do this so that everybody gets the benefit of wine education while keeping health and safety also in mind? So it's definitely a uh, you know, a grappling point for our industry at the moment. So a lot of unanswered questions. You're absolutely right. Yeah, it's definitely changed everybody's in like you mentioned in person tastings. Now, I think there's going to be so uh, it's going to take a while for people to really want to come back to that social setting. But I think that's what people are missing. They're missing that yeah. social gathering, the virtual tasting, everybody's together, uh, but it, it's not the same being in the room and smelling all the aromas of the wine and everybody experiencing that together. So yeah, so much of it is social. And I feel like so much learning happens when people are having conversations with each other about what they're experiencing. And if that can happen in a virtual setting, that's wonderful, but there's really something special about sitting at a table with people who you don't know. And, you know, you're all tasting the same wines and you're all tasting differently because everybody is different and everyone has different palates and different experiences and different taste and scent memories. And being able to exchange that with other people is something that I feel is really hard to duplicate in a situation where you're not sitting side by side. And, and I've always said that the real reason why I got into food and wine was that sense of camaraderie, you know, that sense of conviviality when you're eating and drinking and discussing and, you know, maybe you've had a glass or two of wine and you're getting a little tipsy. And so, you know, you, the, your thoughts throw flow a little more fluidly and you have these really wonderful conversations with people. And that is definitely something that we are missing at this time of, of isolation. So, you know, you if, feel... we all get, if we all get tipsy at home, then we can have those conversations too, but it's definitely different. Do you feel there's two different goals, uh, virtual tasting versus an in-person tasting? For, for instance, I feel the virtual tasting is to really get the word out there that we're here and this is what we do. Whereas an in-person tasting, the goal is probably to put it in your hands and to, for more sales. The, the, the virtual tasting, I don't think the goal is to really sell it as much as to remind you it's here for you to, mm. to buy it when you can. You know, if, if people let us, you know, things are tough. We're still here. When you go to shop, look for us, seek us out. But when you're in person, I think it's, a, I think it's different goals. Do, yeah. do you feel I that? Think it, it, I think it can be. I also think it depends on the way that you sell. So, you know, a lot of people won't trust your words and they will only trust their own experiences. And if they taste something that they like, then yeah, they're going to go out and buy it. But there are some salespeople and some of those sales techniques where they can convince you to buy pretty much anything. And I think that for those people, if their words are powerful enough, then it's enough to make you go buy that thing. And that for that person, 
then whether it is in person or whether it is virtual, then the sales are the point. Um, but I think what you're speaking to is that the virtual tastings are more along the lines of marketing as opposed to the lines of sale. And, and there, are, there are differences between the two of those, but there is something to be said about the experience of tasting and how that can directly translate into sale. And you and I have both seen that you know, time and time again, both from the point of view of the person doing the selling and the point of view of you know, the person doing the buying, or we're not even trying to sell anything, but we just see how powerful it is when people have the, the physical experience with that wine. And because sometimes it's very visceral. It's like you taste that wine. You're like, oh my God, I love this wine. And they're going to buy a couple bottles of it. And nothing that you could say could convince them how good that is and how much they're going to love it. So that- That was a key point right there, Kim. When you said seeing, like you're tasting virtually, you're not seeing the reactions of people if they're tasting with you. Probably not, because not everybody's got the- the camera on or whatever, but when you're in a room experiencing it, you're getting that instant feedback, the expressions, yep. uh, which is key. So, and it's, and I if think it's you're a lot the tougher. person who's doing the buyer, like if you're the person doing the experience and as part of the wine tasting, you are also being, being influenced by how the other people say at your table are responding to that wine. So you might have like a, a ho-hum kind of feeling about a particular wine, but if everybody else around you is like, oh, wow, this is amazing. It's people are very susceptible to the power of how other people experience things. So that's another component of it that's missing when you talk about these virtual tastings is you're not being necessarily impacted by how everybody else around you is responding. So it's not just how the person who is presenting the wines is getting feedback from you, but how you are getting feedback from the other people around you too. So there's all these different parts of it that I don't feel it can be duplicated when you're not all in the same room together. Well, we got to keep telling our listeners, this is what's happening out there. This is is how you can do, there's plenty out there to find. You can actually, the the websites that post wine events now have have changed over to virtual wine events. Yeah, I've been getting those emails too. (laughs) Before you'd had to seek an event in your area to travel to it, right? Now it's like you can pick a virtual event anywhere in the world. So it kind of- in that case, it's a little bit easier. Yeah, Yeah. it opened up your selection. You can go worldwide and join these tastings now. It's not like you're driving down the street. So it gives you some opportunities. But wine lovers, we will come out on the other side of this and tasting rooms will be open again and we will all be able to be side by side tasting and spitting (laughs) next to each other at some point. We don't know when, but it will happen again. And I am positive that when it does, Mark and I will be there waiting for you to to join our our classes. So at some point, it'll happen. We'll be there. We'll be there. Thank you for joining us today on The Wonderful World of Wine. We have been your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. We always welcome your questions and comments. And uh, if you do leave us a question, we hope to be able to answer that question for you uh, on the air. And you can find past episodes of our show on SoundCloud and iTunes. And again, it is The Wonderful World of Wine. Cheers. <laughs>